Welcome everyone. In this class, we're going to discuss defecation disorders, specifically diarrhea, constipation, irritable bowel syndrome. As you probably already know, these are incredibly common disorders and conditions you will encounter on a very frequent basis in clinical practice. So we've already said these are very common disorders among all age groups. So infants have a lot of issues with diarrhea and also with constipation. Teens, young adults have a lot of issues with irritable bowel syndrome. And constipation is a very, very common issue among the elderly. Now these disorders are thought to be due in part to the refined diet associated with Western civilization. When we look at countries where the dietary patterns are very different and where they eat more grains and less refined foods, they have many fewer issues with defecation disorders. So we should be taking some lessons there. What we know is that these conditions have a very negative impact on quality of life and a major economic impact. They account for many days lost at work, incredible amounts of money spent on over-the-counter medications. If you go into any pharmacy or grocery store and you just walk up and down the aisles of the over-the-counter medications and look at how many of them are for any kind of GI disorder, constipation, diarrhea, it's pretty phenomenal. Also, many, many visits to primary care providers and to gastroenterologists. So we're going to take each one in order. Um, we're gonna spend a good bit of time on diarrhea and constipation because those are conditions that impact on continence as well. So diarrhea, of course, we all think we know what it is, but you know there always has to be an official definition. Now the World Health Organization defines diarrhea as three or more liquid stools per day, but they also put in this caveat, more than normal for that individual. Patients use this term to refer to any change in bowel habits on the fast and liquid side. So if they have increased frequency of bowel movements, increased volume of stool, increased liquidity of stools, all of those are reported as diarrhea. And sometimes diarrhea is used to report fecal incontinence or to describe fecal incontinence because it's very, very embarrassing to say that you had an incontinent episode. But if you say I'm having issues with diarrhea and sometimes I don't make it, that's more socially acceptable. So one of the things we always need to do is do follow-up questioning to determine exactly what the patient's telling us when they say they're having problems with diarrhea. Now, Diarrheal syndromes can be divided into, into acute and chronic. Acute are those viral episodes that typically last less than 14 days, and when you're in the middle of one, you're hoping it'll be more like 14 hours. Chronic diarrhea lasts more than 30 days and may you know, be worse at times and better at times. So let's talk first about acute diarrhea. We've all had this, sudden onset, um, and fortunately for most of us, rapid resolution. What causes acute episodes of diarrhea? By far the most common cause is infectious. Those viral episodes, viral gastroenteritis, 
but you might also have an acute episode of diarrhea as a result of an exacerbation of some kind of chronic motility disorder or chronic inflammatory process. For example, when you talk to patients who have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, they'll have their baseline, which might not be truly normal, but then they'll report acute flare-ups where they have marked increase in frequency and volume of stools. You can also see an acute onset in patients who are on tube feedings. So many of these patients have been NPO or have been taking very, very little for a number of days. As a result, the villi have flattened, and so their absorptive surface has tremendously diminished. So when we start those patients on tube feedings, it's not at all uncommon for them to have severe diarrhea for several days. Among patients with acute onset diarrhea, a major concern is dehydration because most of these patients are losing significant amounts of fluid. And many times these acute episodes are also associated with nausea and vomiting, so they're not able to replace their fluids normally. Chronic diarrhea is very different. You're gonna see chronic diarrhea among patients who have an underlying motility disorder, such as irritable bowel syndrome that's diarrhea predominant. You're going to see chronic diarrhea among patients with chronic inflammatory conditions affecting the GI tract, such as ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. You'll also see chronic diarrhea in patients who have some kind of malabsorption syndrome or food intolerance, such as lactose intolerance. And finally, you'll see chronic diarrhea in patients who have peristaltic stimulants present in their intestinal tract. They're usually not aware of this. For example, individuals who have undergone resection of the terminal ileum, the terminal ileum is the only place in the GI tract where you can reabsorb bile salts. So if we resect that area, the bile salts pass into the colon. And it turns out that bile salts are a very powerful peristaltic stimulant. So those patients can be helped with very simple interventions to bind those bile salts. What about patients who are trying to lose weight? And so they're eating and drinking a lot of foods and fluids with artificial sweeteners. Sorbitol is a very commonly used artificial sweetener, especially in foods, gum, cookies, things like that. So you might be constantly chewing or swallowing a laxative and have no idea that you're doing that. And obviously that would cause chronic diarrhea. And finally, some patients are taking magnesium-based antacids and you think of a lot of our laxatives and they're magnesium-based. So sometimes simple questioning and simple education can make a huge difference. So let's talk about um, assessment of the patient with diarrhea and then we'll move into management. You always ask, okay, when did this start? How long has this been going on? That helps you to immediately determine whether this person is dealing with acute diarrhea or chronic. You wanna know stool frequency, stool volume, the consistency, the color, and the odor. Those of us who work in acute care settings are very accustomed to working with patients who have C. diff infections, and we know that their stool has a very distinct odor. 
Certainly, if we see stool that has blood in it, we know that there's a very severe inflammatory process going on and that early intervention is critical. We want to know how their current stool patterns compare to their stool patterns prior to onset of this illness. And very important to ask about associated symptoms. Are you having abdominal cramping? That suggests intense inflammation in the GI tract. Are you having nausea and vomiting? So is this illness affecting both the upper GI tract and the lower GI tract? Are you having issues with fecal incontinence? Now, if I'm dealing with a patient who has acute pattern diarrhea, so it's recent onset, sudden onset, I'm always assessing them for any indications of systemic illness. Do they also have fever and chills? Are they experiencing any joint pain, flu-like symptoms, general malaise? I'm very focused on any signs and symptoms of dehydration. So I'm gonna look at their oral mucosa. Does it look dry? Do they complain of the sensation of a dry mouth? Do they have tinting of the skin? Is their urine dark? Are they dizzy when they stand? Are they very lethargic? What happens with their blood pressure? Chronic pattern diarrhea, I'm looking kind of at different things. I'm looking to see, well, what's the underlying disorder that causes these episodic um, flares of diarrhea? So I'm looking, first of all, for any evidence of inflammatory bowel disease. I know those patients need workup and need an ongoing management plan. So I'm asking them, when you're having these episodes, are you having a lot of cramping pain? Is there any blood in your stool? Is there a lot of mucus in your stool? Have you lost weight? Are you getting up at night? Are you having any issues with nausea and vomiting? So let's say, no, all of those things are negative. Then I'm gonna screen for any evidence that they have irritable bowel syndrome. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit later in this class. So the thing about irritable bowel syndrome is it's characterized by pain, cramping pain, relieved by bowel movements. So I'm, again, I'm asking about pain, but I'm saying, is there pain and is it relieved by bowel movements? I wanna know about any medications, prescription medications and over-the-counter medications. I'm specifically looking for any peristaltic stimulants. Are they on any sorbitol-based medications? Are they taking any elixir medications that contain sorbitol? Are they taking any magnesium-based antacids? Are they chewing sugar-free gum or eating sugar-free candy? That kind of thing. I wanna know about their surgical history because remember, if they have undergone resection of the terminal ileum, they've lost the ability to reabsorb bile salts and they're dumping those bile salts into the colon. So when we talk about the terminal ileum, it's actually the last 100 centimeters of the ileum. So if they have had a small bowel resection, you wanna do some detective work to see what section was removed. You're looking for any indications of malabsorption syndromes. So malabsorption syndromes result in a lot of undigested carbohydrates. And these patients typically have not only diarrhea, they complain of bloating, they complain of explosive gas, and so they'll say, I don't know, you know, I'll be doing fine one day and the next day, all of a sudden I'm 
tremendously bloated. I'm having all of this cramping pain. I'm having explosive gas. I'm having liquid stool. I need to figure out what's causing this and get a handle on it. So if I am picking up on any indications of a malabsorption syndrome, I might suggest to the patient that they keep a food and fluid intake and bowel output chart so that they write down everything they eat and drink and then they write down any GI symptoms and they write down when they have bowel movements, either normal or abnormal. And they can start to see, oh, every time I drink milk, every time I eat ice cream, look what happens. Chronic pattern diarrhea. So we're gonna talk about management. We're actually gonna start with chronic diarrhea and then move to acute. So if you have chronic diarrhea, what you wanna do is figure out what is the underlying issue and focus on that. Many, many times these patients need a referral to a gastroenterologist. So if they have signs and symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, they frequently benefit from a workup by gastroenterology. Definitely, if they have any indicators of inflammatory bowel disease, blood in their stool, weight loss, nocturnal symptoms, a lot of cramping pain, yes, they definitely need workup by a gastroenterologist. If they have indications of a malabsorption syndrome, they frequently benefit from workup to determine this specific malabsorption syndrome and to identify appropriate treatment options. So let's look at some of the specific factors and the treatments based on those. So what if you have a patient who has chronic C. diff? And we're seeing many more of those patients than we did even 10 or 20 years ago. So of course, we're always going to start with antibiotics that target the C. diff organism. Most of the time, we'll also put these patients on probiotics to normalize the flora in the GI tract and to hopefully keep C. diff in check. And patients who fail initial therapy with antibiotics, those who have recurrent C. diff, may benefit from fecal transplant, which sounds so weird, but actually restores the bacterial balance in the colon. If a patient has inflammatory bowel disease, if it's either a known condition or if workup reveals that they have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, they are going to be on anti-inflammatory medications and immunomodulators, typically on a continual basis. So what we have to do is establish remission and then maintain it. In contrast, patients who have irritable bowel syndrome primarily need education and counseling and symptom management. So it's very scary to patients with irritable bowel syndrome because their symptoms make them think something terrible is going on and within their bowel, maybe they have cancer. In reality, it's a motility disorder that responds to sometimes dietary modifications, sometimes lifestyle changes, and sometimes medications. Malabsorption all comes down to dietary modifications, and if you have a patient who has had that critical area of the ileum resected, we can put them on bile salt binding agents like cholestyramine, and it just locks down the bile salts and keeps them from having that laxative effect in the colon. So you can see every one of those treatment plans is different. You cannot treat chronic diarrhea effectively until you figure out the underlying cause. 
Acute pattern diarrhea is different because most of the time we're much more based on symptom management and hydration. So you'll see all kinds of information in the literature about rehydration solutions, the best approaches to rehydration. If a patient comes in and they're acutely dehydrated, it usually involves IV fluids. And beyond that, of course, oral rehydration. If you are recommending fluids to maintain hydration, they should be water-based, but they should not be just water because when you have diarrhea, you lose water, but you also lose sodium and potassium and magnesium. So you'll benefit from electrolyte replacement as well. Pedialyte is an excellent rehydration fluid. What about medications? People who have diarrhea, you're going to find them in the aisles of the pharmacy or the drugstore looking for something to stop this diarrhea, looking for anti-diarrheal medications. In the airport, when you walk into those little kiosks, you'll find Tylenol and ibuprofen and low-modal, not low-modal, um, low-paramide, Imodium because it's so common and because people are looking for something to stop it so that they can sit through their flight, so they can sit through their meeting. <clears throat> so medications do play a very important role in acute onset diarrhea management. If it is a bacterial infection, we have to treat with antibiotics. It's ironic because what is it that causes C. diff infection in the first place? It's patients who have been given large-dose antibiotics or antibiotics on a long-term basis or back-to-back -back, um, episodes of infection have been treated with antibiotics. So it's either prolonged or frequent exposure of the bowel to antibiotics. And you know what happens when we give antibiotics, even though we're trying to treat a respiratory infection or a urinary tract infection or a soft tissue infection, we're also killing off a lot of the bacteria in the GI tract. And a lot of those bacteria are good bacteria that keep the bad bacteria like C. diff in check. So if I wipe out the good bacteria, I essentially open the door to C. diff. I can get rapid replication of the C. diff organism and a very acute onset um, diarrhea that's difficult to manage. So we have essentially antibiotic-associated diarrhea, specifically C. diff. How do we treat? C. diff is a bacterial organism, so we treat with specific antibiotics, such as vancomycin. What about anti-motility agents? When you go into that kiosk in the airport, or you go into the pharmacy, or you go into the drugstore, and you look at what's available over the counter, those are anti-motility agents. So loperamide, that is an anti-motility agent widely available. Is that a good thing to take during episodes of acute diarrhea? Yes, as long as there's no evidence of bacterial infection. If you have any evidence of bacterial infection like C. diff, you would never give an anti-motility agent because then you're trapping the toxins within the gut. So first, rule out any evidence of bacterial infection. If you're not sure, do not give an anti-motility agent and don't take an anti-motility agent. But if this is the GI bug that's been 
you know, going through the school, going through your workplace, going through your family. And you started out, you had some nausea, maybe a little bit of vomiting, then you started having abdominal cramping, now you have diarrhea. This is a viral agent, and yes, you can take anti-motility agents safely. Bismuth which we know as Pepto-Bismol, is particularly helpful for acute onset of traveler's diarrhea because it actually binds organisms in the GI tract. So that is a very safe thing to take. And probiotics may be helpful. So you see a lot of probiotics advertised today. What do we know? Probiotics help to restore and maintain the normal bacterial balance in the GI tract. So that sounds like a good thing, and in general, it is. Probiotics have been shown in a number of studies to reduce the time for resolution of acute onset diarrhea, to reduce the risk of relapse, etc. But we still need a lot more data related to probiotics, we need to know, well, what is the best mix of probiotic agents and is there a minimal effective dose? A lot of things we don't know yet. And finally, what about diet? Well, automatically, if we have acute onset diarrhea, most of us modify our diets. We don't eat greasy foods, we don't eat spicy foods, we don't eat fried foods we typically revert to very bland, safe foods. And that's exactly what we should do. Our GI tract is in overdrive, let's not stimulate it, right? So there's actually a diet known as the BRAT diet or the BRAT diet. And these are foods that are known to thicken the stool and to reduce motility. So bananas, rice, applesauce, green plantains have been shown in a number of studies to be particularly effective in reducing diarrhea and promoting resolution of acute diarrheal illnesses. Now, we frequently are consulted about skin care issues and containment issues because many of our patients with acute onset diarrhea are critically ill and acute onset diarrhea triggers fecal incontinence. So now we have a patient who's very ill, possibly in ICU. They develop C. diff. Now they have frequent episodes of liquid stool. They may not even be alert and they're certainly not able to get up to the bedside commode or ask for a bedpan. So now, on top of all of the other issues, so we've got an acute infectious process going on, we have a patient who's at greater risk for dehydration, but now they're also at major risk for skin breakdown. So what options do we have? Well, option number one, and something that staff nurses do not typically think about, is to use an anorectal pouch. So this is a pouch that's designed to adhere to the skin around the anus. You can see it on top here. So it's totally flexible. It folds in half so that you can tuck it in between um, the buttocks and adhere it to the anorectal skin. The issue is we need to put this on before they develop skin breakdown, and we need to put it on before they're all greased up, before somebody's applied a lot of moisture barrier ointments that are going to interfere with adherence. So if you can get to the patient during that time frame, if you can educate your staff, look, if you have a patient who starts having liquid stools and they're incontinent, 
if you're suspecting C. diff, call me then and let me come and help you get a pouch in place to protect their skin. Call me before you put all that other stuff on their skin. So you're gonna shave or clip any perianal hair. You're going to make sure the skin is clean and dry. If there are any areas of little of patchy skin loss, you're gonna sprinkle on your ostomy powder, dust off the excess, and then spray or blot with an alcohol-free liquid barrier film. Then critically important, separate the buttocks, fold the pouch in half, and place six o'clock and 12 o'clock down first. So you actually center it and make the center portion adhere first and then fold it out onto the buttocks. Very, very helpful to have someone help you when you're putting the pouch in place. It's very hard to do all of that by yourself. I've tried. What if you can't keep a pouch on? What if you've tried or what if by the time you were consulted, the skin is so damaged, there's no way you can get a seal? Or what if by the time you're consulted, there's so much residual moisture barrier product on the skin that you can't get a good seal? Then you're gonna see, is the patient a candidate for one of our internal bowel management systems? And these were designed specifically for high volume liquid stool in an incontinent patient. So the first thing you have to do is you have to rule out any contraindications. We never use these in patients with clotting disorders if they're at risk for bleeding, no. We do not use these if there's any rectal pathology. They won't work if the patient has a neurologic process that causes a very lax sphincter muscle. So you have to be sure they have an intact sphincter, no rectal pathology, no clotting disorders. Typically, we do not use these in patients who have very low white blood cell counts, very low platelet counts. Then if you look at the middle slide here, or the middle picture here, you can see the components of the bowel management system. A lot of you have used this, so you're very familiar with it. So you have tubing, you have the rectal balloon on the end, and then the tubing connects to a collection bag. So what you're gonna do is you're going to lubricate the end of the tubing with the balloon. You're gonna collapse the balloon and insert it into the rectal vault. Once you get it into the rectal vault, then you inflate the balloon and you tug very gently so that it seats right at the anal rectal junction. And then you connect it to the drainage bag. Now, critical to irrigate the tube routinely to prevent blockage. Critical to monitor balloon inflation. You should have a rule, never ever overinflate the balloon. You can cause irreversible rectal damage, irreversible sphincter damage. So in many agencies, the rule is, if you're thinking about adding any water to the balloon, you first have to completely deflate so that you know that the balloon is never overinflated. So you go, your inflation is based on manufacturer's guidelines. You never exceed that. If you're concerned that you don't have the right amount of water in the balloon, first completely deflate and then reinflate. Here's a very important tip to share with your staff. When you have that system in place, you have propped the anal sphincter open because you have a balloon in the rectal vault and then you have tubing running through the anal canal. 
you are almost always going to have some leakage. The goal in using a bowel management system is to minimize the amount of leakage and provide as much skin protection as possible. So anytime you're using a bowel management system, you should be routinely providing perianal skin protection. Staff should know that some leakage is normal and expected, and that leakage should not be managed with more water into the balloon because hyperinflation of the balloon places the patient at risk and actually increases rectal, rectal irritability and the potential for leakage. The other thing is we should get these out as soon as possible. So the manufacturers will tell you these should never be in place for longer than 29 days of continual use. If it's been in that long, the guidelines are remove it, wait for several days before you replace it. What about large bore Foley catheters? They're a lot cheaper than these bowel management systems, but they are totally contraindicated for management of liquid stool because the balloon on a Foley catheter is a high pressure balloon and can cause mucosal damage in a fairly short period of time. So you should never ever see that and you should never ever recommend that. Skin care, now we've talked about this in our um, class on general principles of management and prevention of incontinence associated dermatitis. We'll just go over it briefly here. These patients very, very high risk because they're leaking liquid stool and highly enzymatic stool. So they can get rapid onset of perianal skin breakdown. So we should be applying a high level protective moisture barrier like zinc oxide on a routine basis, every four hours um, or every time we turn the patient. You could also use one of your cyanoacrylate products, the Marathon or the Cavalon Advanced for skin protection, but then you'd have to totally avoid use of any product with an emollient base. So it's more common to use the zinc oxide. If you already have damaged skin, you're back to using your zinc oxide based product because it has the greatest resistance to breakdown and also because it has the greatest ability to adhere to damaged skin. Once you coated the damaged skin, you could consider use of a clear dressing um, over each buttock so that you minimize transfer of the protective ointment to the under pad or the linen. Critical to spend time with the staff to make sure they understand appropriate application and removal. Also, if you are in a situation where the skin is already very damaged, it's wet, it's denuded, and you're trying to apply a zinc oxide-based product, frequently you find that that zinc oxide will not stick to the damaged skin. So now what do you do? Well, you have two options. One is to move away from your standard moisture barrier product and use a hydrophilic paste, such as Triad. That's the most commonly used hydrophilic paste. It will adhere to damaged skin. What if you don't have that? You can take your ostomy powder and sprinkle it onto the damaged skin, dust off the excess, blot or spray with your alcohol-free skin barrier, and then apply your zinc oxide. What if you have a patient who has yeast rash? Yeast rash is very common. 
in patients who have incontinence-associated dermatitis, then you're looking for a product with myconazole. So you can either use a zinc oxide myconazole mix, or you can sprinkle on your antifungal powder, your myconazole powder, dust it off, use your alcohol-free skin barrier, and then your zinc oxide. Okay, so we've spent a good bit of time talking about diarrhea. Now we're going to move to the other end of the spectrum, and we're going to talk about constipation. Now, pretty much we all know what constipation is, but there's an official uh, definition of constipation that was developed by a group of gastroenterologists in a meeting. I guess it was held in Rome. I don't know, but they always refer to this criterion as the Rome 3 criteria. So obviously there have been sequential meetings. So the official definition is two or more of the following for three of the past six months in a patient who does not meet the criteria for irritable bowel syndrome, which we'll discuss in a few minutes. It's like, well, this is already seeming pretty complicated. But let's go through this. So they have to have two or more of these symptoms for three out of the past six months, straining with more than 25% of their bowel movements, lumpy or hard stool more than 25% of the time, a sensation of incomplete emptying more than 25% of the time, a sensation of obstruction or blockage more than 25% of the time, less than three bowel movements a week, and very infrequent loose stools unless they take a laxative. Now, in clinical practice, we're not sitting around most of the time counting symptoms and counting months. Here's what patients use. So if you ask the patient, if a patient comes in and they say, I'm having problems with constipation, I've tried to manage it myself, it's not working, I need help, you would ask them, well, what do you mean by constipation? It would be almost any change in normal bowel habits characterized by reduced frequency of bowel movements or for some people the inability to defecate on schedule. There are some people who think I'm supposed to go every day and if I don't go every day I have a problem. Hard dry stools are always going to be reported as constipation. Difficult stool elimination. I have to strain. It's really hard for me to get the stool out and I don't feel like I empty bloating and cramping. So any problem associated with stool elimination that involves reduced frequency, hard dry stools, difficult stool elimination, bloating and cramping is typically reported as constipation. Now there are a number of types of constipation and effective management is dependent on accurate identification of which type this patient's dealing with. Now, simple constipation, we're gonna define, but we're not gonna spend time on, and you'll see why as soon as we define it. It's occasional difficulty with stool elimination. It's because of dietary issues, environmental factors, or pregnancy. Probably all of you have had this. There are people who say, every time I travel, my whole bowel function gets messed up. So I deal with this every time I travel. Constipation during pregnancy. Almost every woman who's had children has had constipation during pregnancy because of the iron in the prenatal vitamins, the pressure of the baby against the bowel. 
And certainly if you've been eating a very low fiber diet, you're increased risk for constipation. But you can see that's a quick fix, right? So once you get back to your normal schedule, typically your bowel function goes back to normal. Once you start eating normally again, your bowel function goes back to normal. Most women have to occasionally use laxatives or eat a high fiber diet during pregnancy, but once the baby's born, typically their bowel goes back to normal. We are gonna focus on the last three. Functional normal transit constipation, functional slow transit constipation, and obstructed defecation. So what is functional normal transit constipation? In this situation, there's really nothing wrong with the bowel itself. The colon works, the rectum works, the sphincter works. The problem is there's insufficient stimulation for mass movements, for peristaltic, peristaltic activity, and for defecation. Sometimes it's medications. Opioids are a very common offender. Sometimes it's inadequate fiber. Sometimes it's inactivity. Sometimes it's a combination. But the bottom line is, since the bowel itself works normally, all we have to do is fix the extrinsic factors, provide enough fiber, look at their meds, encourage activity. A much more difficult issue is functional slow transit constipation. The problem here is the bowel does not work normally. So you can provide appropriate stimuli to the colon you can put this person on a high fiber diet. You can administer a peristaltic stimulant and the bowel still doesn't work normally. So instead of having normal peristaltic waves that look like this, you've got very blunted peristaltic waves and very infrequent peristaltic waves. Why? Sometimes because of a neurologic lesion like a sacral um, spinal cord lesion. Sometimes we don't know. But that's a much more difficult um, problem to manage. And then the last problem is obstructed defecation. It's just what it says. So here, the colon essentially works, and you get stool delivered all the way down to the rectum. And the problem is getting stool from the rectum and through the anal canal. And we'll talk more about that. Okay, so let's talk about normal transit constipation first. This is where the bowel works, and it's something outside the GI tract that is causing the problem. So if we can just restore normal stimuli to peristaltic activity, we can get this person back on track. So what are the specific issues? Well, we've kind of mentioned them already, but we'll go over them one more time. Insufficient fiber and fluid. Many, many people get very little fiber in their daily diet, immobility, inactivity. So if you're a couch potato, pretty soon your bowel becomes a couch potato too. So then it's really hard for you to get up and do anything and it's hard for your colon to get up and do anything. Poor toileting habits. So some people get into this type of constipation because they habitually ignore the urge to go. They don't go, they delay it and then the stool just sits in the bowel and gets hard and it's very difficult to eliminate. And the other big one is medications. So a lot of our patients have chronic pain and they're on opioids. What do opioids do to the GI tract? There are specific opioid receptors throughout the GI tract and if we're giving our patients opioids, 
we're essentially paralyzing the gut. So we have to compensate by giving laxatives um, or possibly by giving opioid antagonists. We'll come back to that. How many of our medications have anticholinergic components? So if I'm giving this patient something for overactive bladder, I may be slowing down their gut and causing constipation, which makes overactive bladder worse. But many other medications have an anticholinergic component, so we're always alert to that, and calcium-based antacids. So let's talk about low-fiber diet just a little more because this is such a common etiologic factor. People who eat a very low-fiber diet, what ends up happening in the gut? Well, if there's very little fiber in your diet, it means that almost everything you eat just gets broken down and absorbed. And there's no residual mass in the colon to stimulate peristaltic activity. So you end up with these very hard, small caliber stools. They don't distend the colon enough to trigger peristalsis, to trigger those mass movements that normally move stool from the transverse colon to the rectum. Also, you've got, instead of bulky stool, you've got hard, small caliber stool, and it takes a lot more force to push those small caliber stools through the colon than it does to push bulky stool through. So if you look at your Bristol stool chart, we use this a lot when we're talking to patients with defecation disorders. So if you have hard stool, so one, two, and three on the chart, it's very hard to eliminate. You won't, typically you won't four. So it should be soft, bulky, like a soft, smooth snake. That's ideal. Um, we'll talk later about that the optimal diameter for stool in terms of elimination is about two centimeters. Don't you wonder how they figured that out, how they got that data? But anyway, so definitely we want to provide our patients with enough fiber to produce soft, bulky stool. Fiber works because it's not broken down by enzymes, so it doesn't go away. It travels into the colon, it attracts water, and so now you have that soft, bulky stool that does two things. It stretches the bowel to stimulate peristaltic activity, and because it's soft and bulky, it's easier to move it through the GI tract. The other thing it does is it helps to maintain normal bacterial balance in the colon. So go back to our discussion in A&P of the GI tract, and we talked about probiotics and prebiotics and symbiotics. So fiber plays an important role in maintaining colonic health. So how much do we need? Well, women should get in about 25 grams a day. Men should get in about 38 grams a day. And of course, fluid is equally important because fiber attracts fluid. Fiber without fluid cre can create an obstructing mass. So you always think fiber, fluid. And your goal, number four, okay? It's always your goal. If I have a patient who has functional normal transit constipation, what do they tell me? They'll tell me I have hard dry stool, I'm going less than three times a week, I have to strain to get it out. Sometimes I have to take laxatives or a suppository. Occasionally I have to use an enema. But importantly, they do not typically report significant pain. They might say oh, I'm a little bloated or I'm a little crampy, but pain is not a predominant symptom. 
And if you ask them, do you ever take laxatives, they probably have a laxative that is kind of their go-to, and most of them report good response to laxatives. Normal transit constipation, the pathway for management is pretty straightforward. We know what we're trying to do. We're trying to establish normal stool consistency and normal elimination patterns. Most of the time, we will start with laxatives just to clean out retained stool. So very helpful to say, you know what, go on and take your Miralax or your Dulcolax or your Senna, whatever it is you use. Take it on a nightly basis until you're passing mushy stool. At the same time, we're going to be increasing fiber and fluid intake so that we can begin to normalize stool consistency and colonic function. Ideally, they get their fiber in through the diet. But you've got to sit down and talk to your patient. What do you normally eat for breakfast? Would you be eat, willing to eat a high fiber cereal? No, I hate those. Every one of them? Every one of them. Okay, well then that's off the table. Would you be willing to increase your intake of salads, fresh fruits, fresh, fresh vegetables? I hate all that stuff. Or I've been told I can't eat that because of whatever. And most of the time you're not gonna change their mind. So you start with, can we increase dietary intake? If you're open to that, I can give you a list of high fiber foods and I can tell you, here's your list and here's your goal. And you work with the list and you work with the goal. Do you like nuts? Do you like trail mix? That's an easy way to increase fiber intake. If I have a patient who's like, I don't do well with any of that stuff, it causes me these, this problem, or I can't chew it because I only have a few teeth left or whatever, then I can use fiber supplements. And at this point in time, we have so many fiber supplements on the market that I can find something that will work for anyone. Fiber supplements come in gummies for kids. Fiber supplements come in capsules and tablets for people who don't want to stir and drink. They come in powders that can be added to any fluid. A lot of the powders are totally unrecognizable once you stir them in. So they don't gel up and they have no flavor and they have no grit. Bottom line is I can sit down with you and I can figure out a way to add fiber and fluid to your diet. I will start with diet. If that's not gonna work, I'll move to a fiber supplement. At the same time, I'm going to encourage you to increase your activity. Maybe it's just walking. That's fine. Walking's a stimulus to the gut. So if I can get you up and walking, that's good. And I do want to do a review of your medications to eliminate anything that's constipating if possible. Now there's a specific subset of functional um, constipation that I wanted to mention and that is opioid induced constipation. It's so common that in the literature now it's known as OIC. So you can look it up. There's a lot of research that has been done on opioid-induced constipation because we have so many people in chronic pain who require chronic opioids. So what can you do? Well, you could start with fiber supplements and fluids, and that is where you start if the patient can tolerate that. But what if I have a patient with advanced cancer and they're eating and drinking very little? 
then I'm not going to be able to use it. I have to go to the second bullet point on my pathway. Most of the time we put all of these patients on stool softeners like Docusate once or twice a day. Now you have to know that we do not have good data on stool softeners. We don't have good data at all that they work. We know they don't cause problems. We know they're very widely used, but there's no definitive research that, say is, that says this really makes a difference. How do they work? They actually work by reducing the surface tension of the stool so that it allows more water to penetrate the stool and helps keep it from getting so hard, at least in the lab and in theory. Again, in clinical practice, widely used, no great data. All of these patients need an osmotic laxative every day, typically a polyethylene glycol laxative like Miralax or one of the knockoffs from Miralax. How do those agents work? They literally attract water into the bowel, and if you attract water into the bowel, then it's going to keep the stool softer, and it's also going to promote peristaltic activity. What about stimulant laxatives? What about things like Sinicot and Dulcolax? Yes, we use these PRNs. So if you've gone one to two days without a bowel movement, we're going to have you take a stimulant laxative. So we'll use fiber and fluids if you can tolerate fiber and fluids. We will routinely use a softener. We will routinely use an osmotic laxative and we will add a senolaxative or a dulcolax as needed to stimulate peristalsis. Now, in selected patients, we will use opioid antagonists, and the most commonly used one at this point in time is methylnaltrexone, also known as Relistor. So this is used a lot for hospitalized patients who have opioid-induced constipation, the way it works is it has no effect on the opioid receptors in the brain, so you still get full pain relief from the opioids, but it blocks the opioid receptors in the gut, so you get pain relief, but you don't get constipation. And it used to be that we could only give it by injection, but now it's available um, in oral form. So we'll probably see Number one, wider use of opioid antagonist, and number two, we'll probably get more options on the market. The most difficult type of constipation to manage is slow transit, also sometimes known as chronic idiopathic constipation, or sometimes referred to as colonic inertia. This is where the colon does not work. And <clears throat> that's the underlying problem. Your constipation is because the colon's not working. There's a marked reduction in both the frequency and the amplitude of peristaltic waves. So normally, if I distend the colon, you'll see a rapid response. You'll see a series of these propagating waves, strong contractions that push stool through the colon. But if you have a patient with slow transit constipation, that's not what you're gonna see. You can distend the colon. You can administer a peristaltic stimulant like caffeine or reglan, <clears throat> but you don't get this, you get this. So the problem is at the level of the colon. That changes our management. <clears throat> okay, there we go. 
So who is at risk? Why would you get this? Why would your colon stop working? Well, sometimes it's pretty clear. It's a neurologic process that interrupts the autonomic nerve fibers that normally innervate the bowel. So a patient with sacral spinal cord injury is very high risk for slow transit constipation. You can also see this in patients with long-standing, poorly controlled diabetes because they get that autonomic neuropathy. We see it in patients who have irritable bowel syndrome that's constipation predominant. And again, irritable bowel syndrome, we'll discuss in a few minutes, is a motility disorder. And it's thought to be due to altered levels of neurotransmitters as well as possibly altered awareness of um, visceral discomfort. But for those patients, pain is a predominant symptom. And what they'll report is pain, severe pain, relieved by defecation. In contrast, the patient with chronic idiopathic constipation just reports infrequent bowel movements, difficulty with stool elimination, but not significant pain. The vast majority of patients with slow transit constipation fall into that last bullet point where we're not sure why their colon is not working. There's some evidence that it's maybe abnormal levels of neurotransmitters, but what controls that? Possibly the mix of bacteria in the colon, more research ongoing. That category is known as idiopathic slow transit constipation. Unfortunately, a lot of people fall into that category. The clinical presentation is shocking the first time you talk to someone who has slow transit constipation. They will tell you, I only have one to four bowel movements a month. And I've heard clinicians say, that can't be true. Yes, it can be true if you have slow transit. So they'll say, I don't even have the urge to go. When I finally go, I have these really huge bowel movements. It's embarrassing. I have to use the plunger. It clogs up the toilet. I have a lot of bloating. When it's been a week or more since I've had a bowel movement, I start to get to where I just don't have any appetite. I'm borderline nauseous. I tried fiber, that's what everybody says, take fiber, it made me worse. And that actually is very common with slow transit constipation. So I want you to look at the colon on the bottom, and I want you to think about normal function. We talked about this in AMP of the GI tract. So normal function, you have slow transit of stool from the ascending colon to the transverse. And then normally stool is kind of stored in the transverse colon until there's enough to distend the bowel. Once you get colonic distension, then you get a series of mass movements that move stool from the transverse colon to the rectum in a very short period of time. And then that causes the urge to defecate and stool elimination. But in someone with slow transit constipation, when stool gets to the transverse colon and you get enough to normally stimulate mass movements, nothing happens because you've got something wrong at the level of the colon. So stool just gradually pushes its way through the colon until finally the entire colon is filled with stool 
at that point, the pressures in the colon rise to a level that stimulates stool elimination. So you see it's not normal function at all, and you end up with a colon fully distended with stool before defecation occurs, and most of the time. Well, how do you diagnose this? Your history and physical is a huge indicator that this is probably what you're dealing with. But the official diagnosis is based on a colonic motility study. Now, the simple version of this colonic motility study is known as the SITS marker study. The patient takes a capsule that has all these little radiopaque rings. And then they'll do a plain abdominal film four to five days later to see have all of those rings pass through the colon. We'll look at, again, the slide on the bottom and look at the colon on the right. You see all those little radiopaque rings throughout the colon? <clears throat> so instead of normal motility, you have a colon that's very gradually filling and you've got those rings pretty evenly dispersed. Now, they're looking at other diagnostic tools like maybe a video capsule endoscopy or a motility study with wireless motility capsules. At this point, the SITS marker study is the most commonly used study. Patients like, I'm not as concerned with diagnosis, I wanna know what you're going to do. What can be done about this? This is running my life. My, I feel like my life revolves around my bowel and that is not a normal way to live. So you can do a cautious trial of fibrin fluid, but if the patient starts to report increased bloating, increased discomfort, you immediately discontinue fiber. If the patient tells you they've used fiber in the past and it made them worse, don't start them on fiber. Tell them avoid fiber is just going to add to the mass in your colon. We put everyone on stool softeners and osmotic laxatives. We give stool softeners and osmotic laxatives like Miralax polyethylene glycol every day. Not because it's gonna make the colon work, but it helps to keep the stool soft and it helps to keep it um, moist enough and big enough to kind of keep moving slowly through the GI tract. We can try stimulant laxatives, and we will. So we put everybody on stool softeners and osmotic laxatives. We do trials. What happens if I give you Senna? What happens if I give you Dalkalax? Does it work? Does it make you go? Okay, if it works for this patient, then I'm gonna tell them take Senna or take Dalkalax anytime you've gone 24 hours or anytime you've gone 48 hours without a bowel movement. But if you get no response to Senna, no response to Dalcolax, then there's no point in continuing to use that. So we'll use them if effective. Now, there's a lot of research into this condition. As a result, we have some targeted medications that increase the levels of neurotransmitters that regulate colonic motility. So the ones that are most commonly used at this time are lubiprostone and linaclotide. But again, they work for selected patients and not for others. A very important element of care is patient education. Because what have you always heard about laxatives? You've heard, don't take laxatives on a routine basis. That's gonna cause problems with bowel function. 
We even have the term laxative abuse, like drug abuse. But I read a very interesting paper, and I'm like, it made me really see this in a different light. So the author's key point is, why would anyone abuse laxatives? So if you subtract that small group of people who have eating disorders and who have anorexia and who may be using laxatives to keep their weight down, subtract them out. Take the rest of the world. Why do you take a laxative? You take a laxative because you're constipated. It's not like, oh, you know, last week I took one Dulcolax and it felt really good. This week I think I'm gonna try two. And then next week three. No, it's not like you get a high from taking a laxative other than you can finally go and that feels a lot better. So the reason people take laxatives is because of constipation. It's not that laxative call, laxatives cause the constipation. So you're like, we need to re-educate our patients. They need to know that laxatives are appropriately used when you have a problem with constipation. And if your constipation is chronic, you need workup to determine what kind you have, and then we can decide what needs to be done about it? Do you need laxatives on a routine basis? Then take them. And don't feel guilty. You are treating a problem, and you're treating it appropriately. Now, there's going to be some patients who have refractory, slow-transit constipation. So I've tried softeners, osmotic laxatives, stimulant laxatives. It's not giving them normal bowel function, not even close. We've tried the targeted medications. Still, they're not getting the appropriate response. Some of those patients end up requiring surgery or neuromodulation. So they might actually require removal of the colon and connection of the small bowel, the ileum, to the rectum. That's what you see at the bottom. We'll come back to that. And then the last type is obstructed defecation. This is where stool gets all the way to the rectum normally, but then they have a really hard time getting stool through the outlet. Something is wrong. Something causes obstruction at the level of the anal canal. Now, most of the times it's a structural defect. Like if you have a female with a rectocele, like you see on the top with the purple. <clears throat> so what happens if you have a significant rectocele when you sit and strain to eliminate stool, that straining causes the rectocele, um, causes the rectum itself to bulge into the vaginal vault. And you can see that then that's obstructing the anal canal and pushing the stool down distal to the anal canal so the stool's not coming out. Sometimes you get recto-anal intussusception so that when you strain, the rectum literally intussuscepts into the anal canal, prevents stool elimination. Some women with a very weak pelvic floor have something called perineal descent so that when they strain, <clears throat> the pelvic floor drops way out of position and partially occludes the anus. And then some people have rectal prolapse so that the rectum actually protrudes through the anal canal and blocks the anus. The other big group is patients who have functional outlet obstruction, and this is um, pelvic floor dyssynergia. What happens here is patients strain to eliminate stool, but at the same time, they clamp down 
on the puborectalis muscle and they essentially occlude the anal canal. So I'm pushing, but I'm tightening at the same time. So even though I'm trying to push stool out, I'm closing the door. I'm squeezing the anal canal shut. Am I doing this consciously and voluntarily? No. It's a learned behavior. We see it in people who have a history of sexual abuse. We see it in people who have a history of rape. We see it in people who have had very coercive toilet training. So this is a learned behavior and behavior modification can make a big difference. Clinical presentation, again, you get a very clear picture when you start to talk to the patient. So they'll say, you know, I just can't get stool out. Even if I take softeners and laxatives, and even if my stool's really soft, I still have a really hard time getting it out. I have to strain a lot. I don't feel like I empty. If you ask them directly, they will admit to digital maneuvers. Most people don't want to just tell you this. But a woman who has a rectocele might find that if she puts one to two fingers into the vagina and puts pressure against the posterior vaginal wall, she can get the stool out. Patients who have perineal descent may find that if they splint the pelvic floor, they put pressure on the pelvic floor, it helps them eliminate the stool. So ask them. They will tell you when you ask them. How do you diagnose obstructed defecation? The only real way to tell is to do defecography because that's the only thing that tells you what happens during the process of stool elimination. The thing is, it's a really hard study to do because it's inherently embarrassing. So what you want me to do, you're gonna put barium mixed to the consistency of stool in my rectum. So pseudo stool in my rectum. You're gonna sit me on a radiolucent commode and you're gonna use fluoroscopy to see what happens when I try to push stool out. It's very informative, but you really have to establish good rapport with the patient, make them feel supported, minimize um, their embarrassment. Once you figure out what the problem is though, then you know what to do about it. So now let's put all this together and quickly just go through. The patient doesn't come to you and say, oh, I have a problem with functional normal transit constipation, or I have slow transit constipation, or I have obstructed defecation. They come and they say, I'm constipated. So you've got to figure it out. So you're going to start with your history. You're going to ask about bowel elimination patterns, past and present, stool frequency, volume consistency, what maneuvers, medications do they use to support elimination? Do they take laxatives every day, stool softeners? Do they use suppositories? How long have they been having this problem? And do they link it to anything, a new medication, a surgical procedure, what changed? I had one patient, she's like, it's ever since I retired. Well, when I asked her some more questions, her job, she was very active. She um, was walking almost all day long, and she almost always ate a salad at lunch. But then when she retired, she wasn't walking much at all, and it was too much trouble to make a salad, so she was just eating the sandwich. So it was very easy to figure out why she had this problem and very easy to fix it. 
And of course, I want to know their activity level, their fiber intake, and their fluid intake. I want to know about medications, and I'm screening for those that could contribute to constipation. I want to know their medical surgical history, specifically, are there any neurologic lesions? What's their GYN history? What pelvic procedures have they had? Are there any diagnosed GI disorders? What surgery have they had? But of most importance is the bowel chart, because it's going to tell me how often they have bowel movements, what the volume and consistency of the stool is, what elimination aids they use, how, many, um, how much straining they have to do, any associated symptoms. Physical exam is going to sound a little bit like the exam for a patient with um, urinary incontinence and bowel dysfunction because we're going to start out with an abdominal exam. We're going to percuss along the length of the colon and we're assessing for retained stool. So remember that normally your percussion note is tympanic or resonant over most of the colon. Any place where you have stool is going to be dull. So if it's dull to percussion throughout the length of the colon, you've got a lot of retained stool. And then you're going to do your anorectal exam. And this is very helpful in identifying issues or potential issues with obstructed defecation. So you're going to notice the sphincter tone at rest, what happens when you start the digital exam and you insert your finger. Can they voluntarily contract? Can they voluntarily relax? So you say, okay, I want you to tighten around my finger like you're trying to hold in stool, not pass gas. Okay, great. Now I want you to relax and I want you to push my finger out. And what you should feel is relaxation of the anal sphincter and then a downward push. But what if, instead of that, you feel continued tight constriction around your finger, contraction of the anal sphincter, and a downward push? That's that pelvic floor dyssynergia. You want to note retained stool, and you want to note any evidence of erectocele with straining, any evidence of perineal descent, or intussusception. Now management, we're just going to quickly um, go through what we've already covered, trying to lock this down because this is really critical. So normal transit constipation, the bowel works is things outside the GI tract that are interfering. So if you have any evidence of retained stool, you've got dull note to percussion all along the colon, you've got retained stool in the rectum, you're going to do a clean out first. Now, when I talk about clean-out, um, I differentiate between a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach. Top-down approach means I'm taking laxatives. And most of the time, that's the best option because you want to clean out the entire colon. And also, most people would much rather take something by mouth than put something into their rectum. So you can just say, take your usual laxative nightly to your passing mushy stool or you yourself can recommend an osmotic or stimulant agent. What about bottom-up? Does anybody need a bottom-up approach? Bottom-up is enemas and suppositories. If I'm working with a patient who has any kind of neurologic process like maybe a sacral cord injury and they cannot sense rectal filling and they cannot control their sphincter so they cannot control stool elimination. 
it's usually better to do that bottom-up approach because time frame for response to an enema or suppository is much more predictable than time frame for response to an oral agent. If you have a patient who has a colon full of stool but they have impacted stool in the rectum, you need a combination approach. You don't want to give them a laxative until you've cleared out the impaction because you'll just cause tremendous cramping. So you would use possibly mineral oil, enemas, possibly manual breakup and disimpaction, and then an enema to cleanse the rectum, and then you can do top-down. Looking at your top-down agents, you know this, your osmotic laxatives, anything that works by pulling water into the colon, and what you want to realize about your osmotic agents is this is a very physiologic approach to stimulating stool elimination. Because how does the bowel normally work? It responds to stretch. With osmotic agents, you're pulling water into the colon. You're stretching the colon walls, distending the colon walls, stimulating peristalsis. So if you ever have to use a laxative on a routine basis, you want to use one of your osmotic agents. These are all of your magnesium-based and saline-based laxatives, your polyethylene glycol like Miralax, lactulose sorbitol. Now, stimulant agents are very different. That's your Senna, Sinecot, and your Bisacodyl Dulcolax. And they work by actually stimulating the nerve receptors in the colon wall to cause peristalsis. We don't have nearly as much information about stimulant laxatives, but there are concerns that over time stimulant agents could adversely affect the function of the nerves in the colon wall. So we try to use them PRN only. Bottom-up agents, your enemas and suppositories, you know those very well. Fleet enemas very commonly used. Now, and they're, they work very well because they're hypertonic, so they pull water into the bowel, and you get that stretch. If you have a patient who has poor sphincter control, the best way to give the fleet enema is to attach a catheter, a soft red rubber catheter, to the tip of the enema, and then Put the catheter into the rectum, inflate the balloon. So now you have a way for the patient to retain the enema fluid. Now you instill the enema. You leave the balloon inflated for about 15 minutes so that you get good mechanical distension of the colon. Then you deflate the balloon and remove the catheter. One other thing I wanted to mention, sometimes you'll have a patient who has very hard stool and you can't even break it up digitally because it's so hard, it's just this huge mass. So on an anecdotal basis, a half and half milk and molasses enema is very effective. I have seen no research studies. I have used this, I have talked to many other clinicians who have used this. So you take four ounces of milk, four ounces of molasses, heat it till you can mix it, cool it till it's safe for administration. And then instill that right around the fecal mass, typically two to three ounces at a time. You're not trying to stimulate peristalsis. You don't want peristalsis at this point. 
You just want this solution to start softening and breaking up the stool. And how does it work? Well, we think because it's very hypertonic, so it pulls water in, but also seems to have a surfactant effect so that it helps fluid penetrate the stool. So we give that, let it sit for about 30 to 45 minutes, and then again attempt digital breakup to see if it softened the stool enough for you to be able to break it up so that the patient can pass it. And you can, of course, repeat that. Okay, so I've cleaned them out. Now my whole focus is normalizing stool consistency. I really want a four on the Bristol stool chart. So I'm gonna make suggestions about increasing activity. I'm gonna make sure that there, any constipating medications have been eliminated if possible. I'm going to make sure they're getting enough fiber and fluid, either via diet or via fiber supplements. Now, fiber options, we've talked about this a little bit. High fiber diets, your preferred option. No, they can't do that. Are you willing to do a bran mixture once a day? Well, what is that? Well, we would be mixing bran, um, Miller's bran, so it's already ground down, bran, applesauce, and prune juice. You would start typically with two tablespoons a day Every week, you would adjust the dose until you got the desired effect. Uh, no, I don't think I wanna do that. Okay, then third option is fiber supplements. I will say that people who use that brand mixture, these are people who say, you know, I can't really chew well, I don't think I can do that high fiber diet, but I would do that brand thing. It has a very normalizing effect on bowel function. Some long-term care facilities routinely use this for patients who have any issues with constipation with excellent results. So always mention it to your patients. If they cannot do a high-fiber diet before you just automatically put them on a fiber supplement, talk to them about this brand mixture. We do have a small group of patients who are on fluid restriction because of heart failure or renal failure or a combination. Well, I don't wanna put those patients on fiber because I can't put them on fluid. So for those patients, I'm gonna put them on a daily stool softener and I'm going to use a stimulant agent on a routine basis because I can't use fiber and fluid. Finally, for a patient with normal transit constipation, you want to provide education. You want them to know how their bowel works, how they got into this problem, why fiber and fluid is so important, why activity matters. You want them to know it's really important when you have the urge to go, go as quickly as possible, work with your body, not against it. And they should know the best position for stool elimination is not sitting, it's squatting. And you can even buy um, something online, I'm trying to think what it's called, but it's a little stool that you can put under your feet. So it changes you from sitting to squatting. And what that does is it straightens out the anal rectal angle so that stool moves from the rectum into the anal canal and out much more readily. Squatty potty, I think is what they call it. I wish I'd thought of it. Okay, slow transit constipation. You're gonna start with a gastroenterology referral because you need a definitive diagnosis. These patients are managed totally differently. 
they will need a uh, colonic transit study like the SITS marker study. Then as we said, you start with stool softeners daily, not because it's gonna make stool move, but at least keep it soft. Most of the time we put patients on an osmotic laxative daily like Miralax or um, an alternative. We use stimulant laxatives as needed if the patient responds. And remember, we do have those targeted medications. So lubiprostone is approved for management of chronic constipation in adults, both for slow transit constipation and for irritable bowel syndrome constipation predominant. But there are side effects, nausea, diarrhea, headaches. So you have to see, number one, does it work? And number two, can the patient tolerate it? There's another one, um, linaclotide, that's approved for slow transit constipation in both adolescents and adults. And its most common side effect is diarrhea. Now again, a lot of research ongoing. So I anticipate that every few years we're gonna have increasing pharmacologic agents. We're gonna have increasing clarity as to what causes slow transit constipation. As a very last resort, surgery. So start at the last bullet point. There's a therapy called sacral neuromodulation. We talked about it when we talked about refractory overactive bladder. So it's also helpful for some patients with slow transit constipation and this involves implantation of lead wires adjacent to the sacral nerves that control both bladder function and bowel function. And so for some patients, implantation of these lead wires actually seems to normalize motility and improve colonic function and eliminate slow transit constipation. First noted on an anecdotal basis among patients who are using it for bladder management. We definitely need more data, so we have small studies, we don't have big studies, but something to just be aware of. Beyond that, what could you do for someone who cannot go? You could take out the colon and connect the ileum to the rectum. You can also do something called an ACE procedure, anti-grade continence enema. And here what they do is they make a small opening into typically the ascending colon, sometimes the transverse colon, but usually the ascending colon. And they create a small stoma at the level of the abdomen. So to, usually they use the appendix and they insert the appendix into the ascending colon and then bring it out at skin level. What that allows the patient to do is sit on the toilet, feed a catheter into this little stoma and connect it to a bag of fluid so they're literally flushing the colon. Okay, so they're sitting on the toilet and they're running fluid through to just clean the stool out every two to three days. The last thing, obstructed defecation. Again, we said you have to identify the specific obstructing lesion to know what to do about it. So if it's a rectocele, which is one of the most common, Either you can use a pessary to hold the um, colon and the rectum in position, the rectum specifically, or you can do surgery. If it's perineal descent, 
Keeping the stool soft and formed and strengthening the pelvic muscles is beneficial until the pelvic muscles are strong enough to hold everything in position, the patient will have to continue to splint the perineum. If it's rectal prolapse or intussusception, those are anatomic defects that have to be surgically corrected. But if it's that pelvic floor dyssynergia, then in addition to creating soft form stool, this patient benefits tremendously from biofeedback so they can see exactly what's going on and so they can learn to relax the pelvic floor while contracting the abdominal muscles. Laxatives play a very valid beneficial role in management of constipation. So a lot of our interventions surround patient education and counseling. You want this pyramid, this hierarchy, to be firmly implanted in your brain. So fiber supplements, bulk laxatives, those aren't even laxatives. That's just physiologic intake. So if you have a patient who can't take in fiber, you want to give a fiber supplement unless they have slow transit constipation and they respond poorly. Osmotic and hypertonic agents can be used repetitively without adverse effects because it's very physiologic. They work by pulling fluid into the bowel. So all of your saline-based laxatives, your lactulose agents, your sorbitols, your polyethylene glycol formulas. Stimulant agents do directly affect the receptors in the bowel wall may adversely affect motility over time, so we try to limit these to short-term use and PRN use. The last type of defecation disorder we're going to talk about is irritable bowel syndrome. It is a functional disorder of the bowel, and the key characteristics are pain and alterations in bowel motility. If you do a colonoscopy, you don't see anything different. If you do a biopsy, there's nothing different in bowel wall structure. So it is a functional issue. Now again, we have these diagnostic criteria. Recurrent abdominal pain or discomfort at least three days a month in the past three months associated with two or more of the following. Pain and discomfort that improves with defecation they link the onset of pain or discomfort to this change in stool frequency, to this motility disorder, and to a change in stool form and consistency. So it's pain and altered motility. There's some thinking that this may be some kind of either autoimmune or smooth muscle disorder because a lot of patients also experience extra intestinal symptoms fatigue, malaise, joint pain. Some of them also have reflux. Women frequently complain of severe dysmenorrhea in addition to their irritable bowel syndrome. Now, there's distinct types of irritable bowel syndrome and it's classified by the motility disorder that accompanies the pain. So if you have pain and constipation, it's IBS-C or CP-IBS. So we started out with IBS-C, irritable bowel syndrome, constipation. Now they're saying constipation predominant irritable bowel syndrome. 
and you can follow that down. Diarrhea predominant, mixed pattern. People who have a lot of pain and discomfort, sometimes they have diarrhea, sometimes they have constipation. And then you'll have some patients where the motility disorder is not the big deal, it's the pain, and they call that PP, IBS. This affects so many people, and pri primarily teens and young adults. So people in their working prime. It's much less common among the elderly. But because it targets teens, college age uh, young adults, and people in the workforce, it accounts for a lot of lost days at work, a lot of money spent on diagnostic tests, a lot of visits to the doctor's office. Unfortunately, the etiology is still unclear. It's a functional disorder and we don't know exactly what causes it. Current thinking is that it's some combination of the following. That there's something at the level of the intestinal mucosa that renders the bowel abnormally permeable and allows things to penetrate and ultramotility and activate pain receptors. Now, Look at number two because it goes back to number one. Possibly, probably some alteration in what they call the gastrointestinal microbiome, the balance of bacteria in the colon. So we know now that that balance of bacteria controls a lot of things. First of all, it maintains mucosal health and limits permeability. So what was the first thing we talked about? Abnormal permeability. Secondly, when you have normal balance and healthy mucosa, it significantly reduces bacterial adherence and vulnerability to any kind of infectious processes. When the bacterial balance is altered, you get an inflammatory response involving the mucosal layers of the gut and deeper layers of the gut, including the muscle layer. So if you've got an inflammatory response affecting the muscle layers, now you've got altered motility. And it can affect the enteric nervous system because at every layer of the bowel wall, you have nerve receptors that normally control motility. But now, if you have alterations in the bacterial balance that affect those nerve receptors, you're affecting motility. And we think that there's an element of autonomic nervous system dysfunction because we know sympathetic nervous system slows the gut, parasympathetic nervous system stimulation increases motility, and this is a motility disorder. There's also some thinking that maybe there's something wrong with the um, interplay between GI signals and cerebrocortical interpretation, the brain-gut axis, so that sensations that normally would be perceived as just motility are now perceived as pain. Other theories, some alteration in immune system function. We know that there seems to be inflammation that affects motility. Could the immune system be playing a role there? We know that psychological distress plays a role because if you have irritable bowel syndrome, 
your symptoms are predictably worse during periods of stress. And stress management strategies almost always reduce symptomatology. Well, what about the diet? So this is extremely controversial. You can read some papers, some articles, some research studies where the premise says it's what you put in your bowel that causes these symptoms. And then other studies suggest that there's limited impact of dietary modifications on symptomatology. The one point of agreement is that if you take in a large amount of poorly digested carbohydrates, the bacterial breakdown of those um, foods can cause increased gas and pain in susceptible patients. So anytime you have a bunch of theories, you know what it means, we're not sure yet. We do know more about assessment and management than we do about etiology. Your primary assessment focuses on a careful history and physical and a symptom diary. Also very helpful for them to document their stool consistency. So if they can keep a chart where they document their symptoms, bloating, discomfort, pain, bowel movements, then you start to see the link between defecation and pain relief. And you start to see what type of irritable bowel syndrome they have. Beyond that, very few diagnostic studies are indicated. Now, a lot of people with irritable bowel syndrome have had unnecessary diagnostics. They've had CT scans, they've had upper GI, lower GI endoscopy that they might not need. So here are the current recommendations for testing. Do stool testing for blood. Do fecal occult blood testing because that helps to rule out cancer and helps to rule out inflammatory bowel disease. And both of those conditions can mimic irritable bowel syndrome in some ways. You wanna do an H&H to rule out anemia. Very helpful to do an erythrocyte sedimentation rate to rule out an acute inflammatory process. Finally, if you have a patient who has any diarrheal elements, either they have IBSD or they have IBSM, they flip back and forth, we should rule out celiac disease because it can definitely present as a motility disorder and pain. Beyond that, you do additional testing only for red flag symptoms. And red flag symptoms are symptoms that something serious is going on. If you have bleeding, well, you don't get bleeding from a functional disorder. If they came up with anemia, that's a red flag for colorectal cancer. If they have fever, that's a red flag for some kind of infectious process. Unintended weight loss more than 10 pounds. No, a functional disorder does not cause weight loss. If they have a family history of colorectal cancer, you're always going to err on the conservative side and you're gonna do more testing. If they're frequently getting up at night, that's very common with inflammatory bowel disease, very uncommon with irritable bowel syndrome. Or if there's been recent onset and progressive severity. 
that is not at all classic of irritable bowel syndrome. So irritable bowel syndrome tends to remain static, the symptomatology, or sometimes you'll have flares and go back to baseline, depending on what you've eaten, how much stress you're under, that kind of thing. There is a subgroup of patients with irritable bowel syndrome where it's linked to a change in the GI microbiome that follows antibiotic use. And those patients should be identified because they typically respond favorably to a specific antibiotic to knock down pathogens and restore balance. So you wanna know about recent antibiotic use. And of course, you're gonna pick up on any abdominal masses, requires further follow-up, any lymph node enlargement. So what about management? It is a functional disorder. The most important thing we can do is educate the patient. We want them to know why they're having these symptoms. You never want to minimize it. So this is what happens a lot of times when people have irritable bowel syndrome. They're very concerned. They have all these symptoms. Not only does it adversely affect quality of life, a lot of people are afraid they might have cancer because what are some of the warning signs for cancer? alteration in bowel habits, and they clearly have alteration in bowel habits, plus they have pain, which suggests to them something is very wrong. So if you come in, I check you out, I do that minimal testing, I'm like, you're fine, there's nothing bad wrong, you've just got irritable bowel syndrome, you'll probably have symptoms off and on, you can see if diet helps, we can do some medications. Have I made you feel better? No. I've kind of minimized what's going on with you, haven't given you clear insight into why you're having these symptoms, haven't given you a clear pathway for treatment. What you wanna say is, I have good news and I have bad news. So here's the good news. You don't have anything going on that is potentially fatal. You do not have cancer. You do not have Crohn's disease. You do not have ulcerative colitis. So that's the good news. The bad news is that there is no easy cure for what you do have. What you have is called irritable bowel syndrome. That means your bowel is not behaving normally. Sometimes it's an overdrive, and sometimes it can hardly get out of bed. And associated with that, you're having a lot of pain. I cannot give you a medication to make all that go away. There's not a surgical procedure to make all that go away. But I can work with you to figure out what your triggers are. For some people, it's dietary triggers. For most people, stress is a trigger. We can identify your triggers. We can work to control those triggers. And there are medications we can use to help control your symptoms. So. What are those interventions that can help to control symptoms? We start with diet because there's definitely a subset of patients who respond very well to dietary modifications. So even though there's limited data, there is data that some people will benefit tremendously. So we'll start out with a trial reduction in fermentable carbohydrates and lactose, specifically your gas-forming vegetables and um, lactose, milk, dairy products. And we're gonna have you keep that diary to see does it make a difference? If it doesn't make a difference, no need for you to restrict these foods. If it does make a difference, yes, eliminating those foods or limiting intake can make a huge difference. 
exercise and stress management, yes, across the board, that reduces symptomatology and reduces flare-ups. What about medications? Well, for any patient who has constipation-predominant irritable bowel syndrome, fiber generally makes a difference, specifically psyllium-based fiber. So you start, a fiber, start them on a fiber supplement and fluid and gradually increase the dose. In addition, for patients with constipation predominant, until you can get things normalized, you're gonna have them use osmotic laxatives as needed or lubiprostone. Usually we start with osmotic laxatives. They're much safer. We use lubiprostone if they do not respond to fiber, fluids, osmotic laxatives. What if I have diarrhea predominant? Well, Imodium can make a big difference, low pyramide or diphenoxalate, low modal, or occasionally cholestyramine. Cholestyramine, remember, binds bile salts. Some people respond well to cholestyramine even if they have not had ileal resection. What if my main thing is the pain? It's like, okay, I feel better, I'm not scared, but I still hurt. What can we do about the pain? So they tend to use either hyoscyamine, scopolamine, or dicyclamine, bental, to reduce pain, to reduce that cramping. So these are antispasmodic agents that can be very helpful. And then sometimes your amitriptylines or nortriptylines, your tricyclics. Again, we're learning more about how the bowel works. We're learning more about neurotransmitters that control bowel motility. There are some targeted medications that can be used for patients with severe IBSD. Um, Olocetron is a 5-HT3 antagonist that slows the gut, but we use it very little because it can cause severe ischemic colitis, which is a much worse problem. And rifaximin is a selected targeted antibiotic that can help to restore bacterial balance so if you have an IBS patient and they do not have constipation, you don't use it in patients with constipation. But it can be very helpful for patients who have diarrhea, especially if the onset of their IBS symptoms followed um, a course of antibiotics. If you have a patient and you've done the standard workup, you've educated them, you've worked with them on diet, you've worked with them on triggers, you've do, done the basic medications, and they're not responding well, they still have a lot of symptomatology, very negative impact on their quality of life, you're gonna refer them to someone who specializes in IBS. So we're gonna summarize Three major types of defecation disorders, diarrhea, it can be either acute or chronic. If it's acute, your primary focus is symptom management, containment of the liquid stool, hydration, definitely antibiotics for infectious diarrhea, antidiarrheals if no infection. If it's chronic, we've gotta figure out what's causing it. We can do symptom control while we address the underlying etiology. Constipation, what kind do they have? If they have functional normal transit, it's all about fiber, fluids, elimination of constipating meds, and getting them up and moving. If it's functional slow transit, it's softeners and laxatives, possibly targeted meds. If they fail all of they, those, possibly surgery 
or sacral neuromodulation. If it's obstructed defecation, I've got to figure out what is it, rectocele, perineal descent, rectoanal intussusception. We're going to do surgical intervention for anatomic defects. We're going to teach them exercises for weak muscles. We're going to teach them how to coordinate sphincter relaxation and abdominal muscle contraction if they have pelvic floor dyssynergia. Irritable bowel syndrome, it comes down to education. The patient has to understand this, and then we can work with them to identify triggers and to manage their symptoms. Okay, you survived defecation disorders. Thank you very much. The next one up will be fecal incontinence.